following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. The sermon this morning is a continuation of a sermon series entitled Life in Christ. Jesus said that for those who follow him, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. The majority of people in America today believe this promise that through Christ we can have eternal life. Some, though, find it extremely difficult to believe in eternal life. They have serious doubts. If you are one who has questions about the possibility of immortality, it's important to note that the Bible as a whole has a perspective quite similar to your own. We'll be looking this morning at what the scriptures say about eternal life. Let's be for a moment in a spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Easter falls when it does in the calendar because the crucifixion and resurrection were around the time of the Passover, and Passover is in the spring. In the northern hemisphere, in temperate climates, that means that Easter lines up quite nicely with the bursting forth of new life that we see in this season in the world all around us. And that seems a very good image for the new life that we are celebrating on Easter. Along this line, many people through the years have liked to think that the hope for eternal life is a part of the natural order of things, that even though our bodies die, we will inevitably continue on into some kind of immortality, just like the spring bulbs that, that seem to have died in winter but burst forth into new life in the spring. You can see this sort of thinking reflected in many contemporary films. The movie Soul, for example, or the movie What Dreams May Come, or the movie Heaven Can Wait, have varying storylines, but they all have a common idea that every human being has an immortal soul which will automatically continue on into an afterlife. This sort of thinking goes back into ancient times. The ancient Greeks had a notion of an immortal soul, and the Egyptians had elaborate speculations about the journey of a person after death into eternal realms. The passage that we heard a moment ago from the book of Job starts with the image of the renewal of life in nature. As it said, there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, that it will sprout again, that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grows old in the earth and its stump dies in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth branches like a young plant. You might think that you are about to get a nice encouraging message that even if your branches are scraggly and your roots are old, there might be, there will be a, a, a bright new life coming. But then the passage turns. But mortals die and are laid low. Humans expire, and where are they? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so mortals lie down and do not rise again. 
until the heavens are no more, they will not awake or be roused out of their sleep. The Bible is not a frothy, feel-good sort of book. The sharply skeptical view that we see here in Job toward the idea of immortality is actually the consistent viewpoint of the Bible portrayed throughout almost the entire Old Testament. The basic Old Testament perspective was that when you are dead, you're dead. The ancient Hebrew people were quite familiar, of course, with all those extensive Egyptian and Greek speculations about an afterlife, but to all those elaborate notions about immortality, the ancient Hebrew people said, hogwash. At most, they felt, there might be some sort of misty realm that they called Sheol, a dark abode to which they felt everyone went upon death, where there might be a kind of a shadowy remnant of the deceased. But Sheol, also called the pit, was analogous to the inside of a burial vault. As it is said in the book of Ecclesiastes, the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, and even the memory of them is lost, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Similar expressions can be found throughout the Psalms and the, pro the prophets. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into the silence, says Psalm 115. Those who go down into the pit have no help, says Psalm 88. They are forsaken among the dead, remembered no more, cut off from God's hand. Or from the book of Isaiah, Sheol cannot thank God, death cannot praise God. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for God's faithfulness. Sometimes people want to say that religion arose in the world because people wanted to believe in an afterlife. So they invented religion in order to give themselves the hope for heaven. But this was clearly not the case with biblical faith because the ancient Israelites did not believe in heaven. They did have a word that we translate with our word heaven, shamayim, which means sky, or it can be used in a figurative way to describe the abode of God, as in God reigns in heaven. But there's no idea in the Old Testament that heaven is a place where you or I might go when we die. There is a point in the book of Genesis where people are told, you will not die. That was what the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden. God said to Adam and Eve, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is what ancient Hebrew people believed was the, the final end of our life, that we simply return to the earth. Obviously then, ancient Israelites did not believe in God because they thought that belief in God was going to get them a ticket to heaven. They believed in God because they perceived that God is the reality behind all things, that God is the source of all that we have. So they felt we should trust God in this life, we should thank and praise God for all God has given us, and we should simply hope to leave a good legacy for future generations. But some people will ask, well, what about the, the, the whole idea of an immortal soul? In fact, there is no such idea in the Bible. The notion of an immortal soul is an idea that was popular in ancient Greece. 
and some other pagan cultures, and people often have wanted to read that idea into the Bible. But the concept actually is nowhere in the scripture itself. You may find the word soul in the Bible, a translation of the Hebrew word nephesh, but nephesh simply means the life force or the selfhood of an individual. There's no concept in the Bible that we have some sort of immortal essence that's going to inevitably continue on into eternity. Instead, the biblical view of human beings is one that's actually quite consistent with modern science. The Bible views the human person in a holistic fashion, not as a mortal body and an immortal soul that are loosely tied together, but, but as a unity of body, mind, and spiritual faculties which are thoroughly bound with one another. When a person dies, the whole person dies. According to the Bible, we are not immortal beings. We are not demigods. We might wish ourselves to be, but the Bible is not given to wishful thinking. The biblical perspective is well expressed in Psalm 103. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. And you were hoping for an uplifting message this morning. <laughs> but it's very important to note the biblical starting point. The Bible starts with a very modest and inherently skeptical viewpoint, not at all inclined to buy into religious myths such as were prominent in surrounding cultures. From the New Testament perspective, it makes great sense that Old Testament people had this kind of outlook. Biblical people of faith believed only what was revealed to them by God. In Old Testament days, God had not revealed anything about eternal life, and Jesus had not yet come. So there were no grounds for anyone to believe in life beyond death. They had a strictly down-to-earth perspective. Over time, however, people began to realize that there was reason to at least raise the question as to whether there could possibly be life beyond the grave. And they began to think along this line because of what they were increasingly experiencing about God. During the Old Testament period, as people learned more and more of God, they began to perceive that the nature of God, the very character of God, could provide reason to think that God might indeed bring about life beyond the grave. The chapter in Job that we heard begins to explore this question as it asks, if people die, shall they live again? Perhaps, as we think about God, we might join with what with, with Job was, and people in that time were perceiving, that they perceived, first of all, that God is a caring God. And if God cares for us and God values us, might God perhaps desire to hold us in life? As Job says to God, you would long for the work of your hands. People have perceived also that God is a merciful God. And if God can forgive us, might God overcome our sinful condition so that we could live with God? As Job says to God, you would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up 
and you would cover over my iniquity. And of course, people recognize that God is all powerful and is the author of life. So surely God could create life beyond the grave. If people die, shall they live again? Then Job concludes, forget about it. As the torrents wash away the soil of the earth, he says, so God destroys the hope of people and sends them away. Biblical writers are not at all interested in trying to make you feel warm and fuzzy. They just tell it like it is. From the perspective of people of faith in the time of Job, the hope for eternal life was simply unsubstantiated. There was no evidence for it, no solid grounds to believe in it. This kind of hard-nosed biblical perspective offers a very good corrective to the kind of whimsical speculations about immortality that often become popular in our time. People today will entertain all sorts of notions about reincarnation or ghostly spirits or the transmigration of souls and of all sorts of fanciful imaginings about heaven. The Bible, in contrast, would lead us to ground our belief only in what is clearly revealed to us by God. As time progressed toward the New Testament period, people reflected more and more about the character of God and its implications for the possibility of eternal life. Most of all, they reflected about the love of God. In Psalm 103, for example, Right after that verse, we heard about people being like the grass of the field. The psalm continues, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. If God's love is forever, might God hold us in that love forever? If people die, shall they live again? On Easter, God answers that question decisively with the empty tomb. The empty tomb is not myth, but historical reality. Even the opponents of the early Christians accepted the fact that the tomb was discovered empty. They tried to come up with explanations for it, but not only was the tomb empty, there were multiple occasions in which people encountered the risen Christ. In the resurrection, we see that Jesus had died and now he lives again. On Easter, God answers Job's question with a resounding yes. Indeed, in Jesus, God answers all Job's questions in a positive fashion. In Jesus, we see that God does care for us. We see that our sins can be forgiven. We see that God actually views us as a parent views a child, and God wants us to be in God's family forever. On Easter, we see that God can and will give us life beyond the grave. Notice that we are not talking here about an immortal soul. Christianity speaks not about immortality, but about resurrection. We will have life eternal, not because we are naturally immortal, we have eternal life because God will raise us out of death into life. The contemporary theologian Frederick Buechner once put it this way, man does not go on living beyond the grave because that's how he's made. Rather, 
he goes to his grave dead as a doornail and is given his life back again by God. That is resurrected just as he was given it by God in the first place. One might suggest, of course, that whether we're talking about immortality or about resurrection, the end result is the same. We're talking about life eternal beyond the grave. But there is a fundamental distinction. The idea of immortality is based upon a belief about ourselves, the notion that some part of us is just naturally immortal. It is an idea that stands on very shaky ground. It's also a very me-centered notion, because if I believe in my immortality, then my destiny involves an extension of myself into eternity. I don't even really need God. Notably, those contemporary films that depict immortal souls floating off into an afterlife leave God out of the picture. The idea of the immortality of the soul plays to our common human tendency to be self-absorbed and to imagine that our salvation lies in our own self. In sharp contrast, the Easter message of resurrection draws us toward God. Belief in resurrection is grounded in what God does, that God acts in history, raising Jesus from the grave, opening the way now for all of us to enter into eternal life. Is a belief also grounded in who God is, that God is a God of love, of mercy, and of saving power. The resurrection draws us beyond ourselves to realize that our destiny lies in God. We find hope and everlasting purpose in life as we accept what God has done for us in Christ and as we join then as disciples of Christ. The resurrection can profoundly shape not only our view toward death, but our outlook also in the face of the great challenges of life today. When the crucifixion is followed by the resurrection, it says not only that death is vanquished by God's gift of life, it says that God's goodness will triumph over even the greatest of human sins and evils. This brings great hope for places such as Ukraine, that with God's help, there can be new life out of the ashes of a brutal and immoral war. And it gives hope in the face of whatever wrongs or trials we may be facing in our personal lives, that God can bring us into new life today. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. Immortality is not our natural and inevitable human destiny. Eternal life is a gift offered to us by God through Jesus Christ. We will experience God's saving and resurrecting power now and for all eternity as we put our faith in Christ and open ourselves to what Christ can do in us today. As it is said in the first letter of John, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has Christ has life. Let us be in prayer. Eternal God, we give thanks and praise 
for how you have entered into our world, our world so full of brokenness, so full of sin and death, and you have acted through Jesus Christ to open the way for us out of sin and death into life everlasting, and life now in fellowship with you. Lord, move us to respond in faith, to receive that gift of life that you offer to us, to open ourselves to your life-giving power that would work in us now, to lift us up out of despair, to enable us to know that you are here, O Lord, to guide us through every challenge in life, and to know, Lord, that even as we ultimately face death, you will bring us through death into that everlasting promise of living forever in your wondrous love. Move us, O God, as we today would, would lift our hearts in faith and trust and in praise as we celebrate that good news of the resurrection. And Lord, as we are drawn into your presence, we pray you would empower us to join together as your people in the church to be instruments of your good news and your love and your life-giving power in our world. We do reach out to persons who are in times of particular need in our own church fellowship. We pray for those who are sick or are dealing with uh, times of surgeries. And we lift up especially Gail Lundberg and Pat Ginn. We also pray for those who are mourning. We lift up the family and friends of Candy Thaxton, and we give thanks, O oh God, for the decades of Candy's witness and the life of this church. We lift up also Greg Beatty and family upon the death of his cousin, James McNaughton. Lord, we thank each one of us in our own hearts of loved ones who are now departed from this world. Lead us as we would take hold, O oh God, of that good news of eternal life that we have through Christ, that we may know the assurance that your children are not lost forever but they are held in your eternal love, surrounded by your light and your grace. Lord, fix our vision upon that good news of Easter that we may know that your children live with you forever. We thank you, Lord, for how we can continue to be instruments of your care in this world. We do pray for our fellow United Methodists this morning at the Stowe United Methodist Church, and we pray for people around the world who are in times of great challenge. We think especially of people in Ukraine suffering the ravages of a horrible, immoral war. Lord, in the midst of that time of great crisis, we pray that your spirit would continue to be at work, giving people there new hope, new strength, helping us, Lord, to recognize how you are at work, to lead us through great troubles, to lead us through death itself, into the kind of life in which you are drawing us to live. Move us as a church, we seek to be instruments of that good news and care. Guide us, Lord, as we would place our trust in you as we live as people living in the light of Easter and as we lift to you our commitment and our praise. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.